the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Today's guest, Dr. Stephen Post, marries medicine and philosophy to inspire us to deepen our own happiness, health, and success by lifting up the people around us. Dr. Post is the founder of the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. He is a frequent contributor to the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and Time Magazine, and he's the author of the new book, God in Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. Welcome, Dr. Post. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much. It's a delight, Joan, to be with you. So, Dr., your book, God in Love on Route 80, it's a story of synchronicity. It's about perfectly timed occurrences. What is the synchronicity that you write about? I write about uh, a number of synchronicities that I have experienced personally. It's a personal narrative book. It's not my usual dry academic thing. It really is a story about uncanny encounters, of which there are a number, uh, and these involve uh, premonitions, these involve dreams, these involve intuitive moments, these involve these really spectacular occurrences where you meet just the perfect person at the perfect time in the perfect place with the perfect gifts, as if in response to a prayer or a hope in a moment of some desperation. So synchronicity is really something that Carl Jung, the great psychologist, said goes beyond luck. It's not ordinary causality. It has something to do with a universal mind that brings us together and that suggests a greater oneness in human experience and in human mind than sometimes we assume in our more materialistic moments. I like to call these God winks because I am really working to become more aware of them. And my friends and I, we joke a lot, you know, we'll say things like, you just can't make this up. Or, you know, when you see the magic of it, it really does let you understand that there is a force that's guiding your life. Yeah, God winks is a nice term. I, I use the term uh, God whispers. Uh, I also use a word that Larry Dossey takes up in his wonderful book called One Mind, uh, and that is uh, noticing. You need to be a noticer. You need to breathe deep, slow down, and notice these uncanny occurrences around you that really do, in fact, reveal a kind of loving, higher presence that we don't fully understand. Doctor, you write about a universal mind. Can you explain how you understand that to be? Yes, I can. I'd be happy to, Joan. I have, since I was 15 or 14 years old, up at St. Paul School in New Hampshire, uh, reading uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, The Oversoul, which we all read for literary value. But I've, I'm one of those who, as a youngster, really believed that our minds are much more connected. And what that suggests is that, in fact, uh, our minds are not just local. Uh, they are not just derived from tissue, from cells, uh, and so forth, but rather have a remarkable uh, universality. Jung would call this collective unconscious. When I was at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, as a 17-year-old, 
One night late in January, a fellow bounded into the coffee shop where I was sitting there. Those were the days of Steve Jobs, who slept on my floor. And uh, he said, I'm Andy. I've got a new motorcycle. It's a Harley Davidson Shovelhauser. Who wants to go for a ride? And like a fool, I said yes. And I went out there. It doesn't get snow in Oregon, but it rains a lot. And it was slushy. It was cold. And this fellow, who looked a little bit questionable, he just shot off into the night with me on the back of his motorcycle. He hit 180 miles an hour in no time flat. He drove down toward the California border for an hour. I was screaming. I thought I was dead. Finally, screaming into the night, he did a U-turn along the midway and dropped me off exactly where he picked, uh, picked me up in front of the coffee house. I, I was swaying and unbalanced and wondering if I was really alive or not. I got into my dormitory. I'd never picked up the phone. Uh, it rang, the, the payphone on the wall. Uh, I felt a kind of push to pick it up. It was uh, now uh, 11 at night, West Coast time. It's 2 in the morning in New York. And lo and behold, uh, as I pick it up, I say, hello, and it's my mother calling from New York. Stevie, you're alive. I woke up. I had this incredible premonition. I was sweating. I was shaking. I thought you were dead. And I said, Mom, you know, I thought I was dead, too. And we talked about this and how a, a, a mom 3,000 miles away could have that sort of a deep experience of my own fear and imperilment. Uh, that suggests that there's something about mind that goes beyond matter uh, and that we don't fully understand. But it really is part of our lives and we just need to be open about it. So you talk about paying attention and being open to it. How can we learn to recognize the signs and synchronicities that guide us? Not everything is synchronicity. I don't think everything that occurs to us uh, in our lives is synchronicitous, but I think there are these special moments, uh, and you know them when they happen. It's very subjective. But when those moments occur in answer to a real need uh, that you express somehow to the universe and and you, you hope for an answer, you're not sure that one will come, uh, when those kinds of things happen, you can be pretty sure that uh, they're special. So you write about a blue angel dream. Can you tell us about this and what do you believe is the message? Yeah, there is a message to that. So this is where my life began. You know, I've I've done really well. I've written a lot, you know, 400 articles in major scientific journals and medical journals from JAMA to New England, you name it. I've taught, you know, great medical schools, uh, teaching students compassion, empathy, bioethics, and so forth. But uh, all of my work uh, began uh, really when I was 15. I was up at St. Paul's School in New Hampshire. I would wake up in the morning and I had a recurring dream. It had recurred six times within about a year. Uh, it was uh, remarkable. I, I would see a thick mist. I, I couldn't see very far in front of my face. It was a silvery gray cloud. And uh, I'd be walking on a road to the west. I knew not where. And then I saw the face of a young man with uh, scrawny, dirty blonde hair leaning over a ledge and about to jump. Then... The fog lifted, uh, the mist was gone, and I saw, although I didn't, never believed in angels at the time, I'm not sure I do now, but I saw the face of a blue angel, and in a very soft, empathic, quiet voice, it said, if you save him, you too shall live. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know it was just me making things up, because, you know, human beings are desperately seeking meaning in life, and they, they, uh, they come up with all sorts of... Uh, constructs but but because this recurred six times and I would go we had eight o'clock morning chapel service every day and before chapel I would go to my favorite wooden pew and I'd kind of meditate on this and wonder about it I had a great sacred studies teacher Rod Wells who knew Alan Watts Rod was a Yale Divinity School grad so he took an interest in this he was key and one day he actually drove me to Yale Divinity School I was 17 I gave a a, a presentation to a, a class in adolescent spirituality and they asked me about the dream and they said well did it result in anything I said well one thing I did was I applied to Reed College in Portland Oregon where no St. Paul's kids ever go and we went on I, I, I told them about my Emersonian side and how much I loved this idea of a one mind I wasn't sure there were many minds in the universe I thought there was one mind 
in which we all somehow participated. So lo and behold, long story short, um, that summer I've got a tutoring job in the Bronx, but my parents put their feet down because they thought it was too dangerous. So instead I had to take a job at Bill De Bono's lampshade factory in Patchogue. And after two weeks of cutting cardboard, it was enough. And with my Siddhartha in my pocket, uh, with my classical guitar and with $50, I took dad's gray Mercedes 190 and just headed west because the dream pointed me west. But there was also a push because of the argument at home and also and because I was not particularly uh, adept at cutting cardboard. So I just drove west and uh, I, I, over the George Washington Bridge and I saw the two signs. One said 95 South, I once said Route 80 West. And of course, I went on west. And five in the morning or so, I'm in the middle of Pennsylvania near the Lewisburg exit. I'm in this, you know, it's a Mercedes 190 that was secondhand and had seen better days. And I think Dad got it so that he could look good when he brought us up to St. Paul's. <laughs> but anyway, I was thinking about turning around and sort of, you know, redeeming my reputation. I was actually headed for Swarthmore. But, uh, you know, suddenly, the, the generator broke. And in those days, when the generator broke on a car, cars don't have generators now. The whole thing was dead immediately. There was no light, no energy, nothing at all. And I was lucky as could be to get over on the right shoulder. I can't see anything except wheat fields in the early morning uh, dawn for miles and miles and miles. There's no payphone. So I did what a kid would do. I took a piece of paper out of the glove compartment and I wrote a note in pencil to the Pennsylvania State Police. Please return this car to Henry A.V. Post from his son who no longer works in the lampshade factory. And I put my thumb out and a big white truck came along and a guy opened the door and it was his name was Gary and he said, where are you going? And I said, West. And long story short, I got out to San Francisco and I spent a month uh, with my cousin George in the Mission District at 4 Chenery Street. I joined a Buddhist temple, a Nichiren Shoshu temple where people chant Nam-yo, Renge-kyo, uh, and I had a wonderful time there, but then I drew a really bad draft number. So I called the people at Reed, and I said, look, can you let me back in? I know I turned you down, but here I am, and I kind of need to get into college. So they said, all right, 7 in the morning, corner of Chenery and Market Street, for anybody who knows the Mission District, in front of the temple, uh, with George and a whole lot of people, they gave me a go-home zone, which is a scroll, and it has special meaning and symbolism. I said goodbye. I took the Marcus Street bus, got to the Golden Gate Park, walked across the park, which is a good bit of a walk, walked up the bridge. The bridge was gray, silvery. I couldn't see more than about two feet in front of my nose. I'm on the left side on the little pedestrian walkway by the railing, and over on the other side of the railing is a ledge. I get to the middle of that huge big span. I still can't see a thing, but I, I hear a shuffling noise to my left. And I look and I think I see a young man with stringy, dirty blonde hair leaning out over the edge about to jump. So I stopped and I looked at him and he noticed me. And I just said very quietly and very tenderly, I said, I truly hope you're not planning to jump. I'm 17 years old. That's what I said. And he was indignant. He actually shouted at me and he quoted empty nothingness lines from Macbeth and I said you know we all feel that way and it sounds a lot real more realistic when you're out there on a ledge about to jump into the bay than it does at Memorial Hall at St. Paul's School in New Hampshire <laughs> and so we actually struck up a conversation and I and eventually I said to him look if you come over this railing I'm going to give you something that will change your whole life it's not just superstition he said what's that and I pulled out my gahone zone from my backpack and I unscrolled it. It's about three or four feet long. And I said, look, come over here. I'm going to explain these symbols. And he actually stepped over uh, the railing uh, and stood next to me. His name was Harry. And I said, well, this symbol means universal mind. This symbol means the power of oneness, of interconnectedness. Uh, this one means slow down enough to take heart and to love one another. And I explained this to him. And I said, look, Harry, I'm going to give this to you. But you have to make a promise. You have to go down the Golden Gate Bridge, heading south to Golden Gate Park. You have to walk across the park at the Market Street bus, take it to Chenery and Market. And here's a note, which is in the book, uh, to my cousin George Lamont. He was a Chapel Hill graduate who had been in Vietnam. This is Harry. Let him sleep on the floor where I slept. Take him down to the temple. Introduce him to everybody. Take care of him. Try to keep him, uh, keep him in, in, in good shape. And, and, and thanks very much. 
And so then I took the, the, the bridge north, uh, got to the edge of the bridge, the end of the bridge. I put my thumb out and an old truck stop. I'll never forget. It was a green farmer's truck and a guy threw the door open. Hey, where are you going? I said, north to Portland. He said, well, my name's Dwayne Dill, D-I-L-L, just like in Dill Pickle. And this here's my wife, Dorothy. Jump in. And I got up to got up to Oregon. But for me, that was an amazing moment in my life, turning point, because I'd had that dream when I was only 15 years old. And I wasn't a big dreamer. You know, that's why it struck me so much. And it was repetitive. Otherwise, I would have just said, hey, put this on the shelf. It's just something I made up. But I had this feeling that maybe it was premonitional. But it was two years earlier, and it was 3,000 miles away. I mean, you know, Concord, New Hampshire, San Francisco, that's a long trip. And, and I thought, you know, they're right when they say that there is this universal mind and that it is what we sometimes call supreme being. We Sometimes we call it God or original mind or whatever you want to call it is up to you. But it connects us and we all participate in it. And uh, it is loving and it can be so loving that we'll even set up a situation like this where I just a young kid am out there on the Golden Gate Bridge and I have this unbelievable encounter. And for the rest of my life, and this is true, and every, anybody who knows me will tell you this, I never doubted synchronicity. I never doubted that we are more cherished than we, than we realize. And the dream, even when I was at the University of Pennsylvania, doing immunology, when I was at Cornell Med, doing pediatric hermaphrodism uh, research type work, the dream always lured me. And so finally, I, I, I left science. I went to the University of Chicago Divinity School, and I studied world religions and spirituality and synchronicity. And then toward the end of that period, they kind of drafted me to work in the medical school there to, to teach issues in, in communication and, and healing. And I've been doing that Chicago, Ann Arbor, 20 years, Case Western, Stony Brook. But yeah, absolutely. That was the, the dream that shaped my life. Did you understand the meaning of it in the moment? Were you mindful enough to make the connection or did all of these lessons come to you when you were thinking back over it? Oh, yeah. So when I had the dream, you know, I would talk with my schoolmates about it. You know, Rod Wells had a great class in ancient history, sacred studies, we called it, you know, and and we read a lot of really great things, you know, Plotinus and a lot of these philosophers of the one mind. And and I, again, I was the only person in class who actually believed these things. And I, I, I just felt that this was real and we would debate it. And But did I think that, that I had any real understanding of what those words meant? No. Not until the bridge. And when I was on the Golden Gate Bridge, I, I had that experience and I realized that by coming all the way across the country in this incredibly synchronistic, almost alchemical way, you know, by the way, six months later, I, was, I took a course called Alchemy 101, which was a, a mixture of quantum physics and the history of medieval science and read. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, when the car broke, I thought there was something going on here. When that Mercedes generator busted, I thought, you know, there's really something special about this, and maybe I'm not supposed to turn around. Maybe I have a destiny. I don't know what it is. I have no idea what it is, but I have some kind of a destiny out west, and I went west. And, you know, um, all my life I've taught, you know, I wrote a book called Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Happier, Healthier Life Through the Simple Act of Giving, and I've done research. I, you know, Sir John Templeton and I founded the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love to study how giving is of benefit to us all. Uh, not necessarily intentionally, but as a byproduct of our generosity, we discover a deeper self. And so uh, this has shaped my whole life, my work with deeply forgetful people, with people with dementia, I call them the deeply forgetful, with uh, adolescents who are drug addicted, uh, doing pastoral care in, uh, in addiction units and hospitals around Long Island. Uh, you know, everything I've done uh, comes out of those words, uh, if you save him, you too shall live. And that's what, what life is. And, and when we can live that way, um, we can flourish. I think that's a really important message because I think a lot of people today have this, you know, this belief that they are in it by themselves, that they can do it alone. But really, you know, when you get this understanding of how we're connected and that there's an energy and a power, I think it really does give life more meaning. And I don't know. I, I mean, I think it could be the answer to so many of our problems today. 
Yeah, you know, we're victimized by this materialism. I wrote the I wrote God and Love on Route 80 in part because when I talk with people, students, faculty all over the country, you know, I ask them, "Have you had any of these kinds of uncanny connective moments?" Almost all of them say yes, but they're so inhibited, they're kind of frightened to even mention it because it sounds kind of strange, but actually it's not strange at all if we understand that there is this part of the mind of human consciousness that is is really original mind, if you want to put it in those terms, that even comes before the Big Bang, before there was time and, and space and place. There was this original infinite mind, as people call it, and it's a mind of love. And we were made in this universe. The universe itself was set up with its thermodynamic constants and its mathematical principles, but somehow it was set up, and it was set up so that we could live lives of creative love and connectivity, and that we are in that kind of lifestyle, living with the spiritual grain of the universe, not against it. A couple of friends of mine and I wrote an article about widows and widowers and how they do better with grief and bereavement when they can self-report helping others in the neighborhood or volunteering. And when they do that, they get through grief uh, more deeply and more enduringly and a little quicker. So um, got a call from the New York Society of Widows and Widowers. They were having an annual meeting. They wanted a speaker. So they said, uh, would, would I show up? And I came and came into New York, gave a talk. It went pretty well. At the end, there was Q&A, and, at the, and there was a guy in the back of the, of the room waving his hands frantically, and I called on him. And uh, he said, I don't care what you say, buddy. I don't do nothing for nothing. And, you know, Joe, so the problem is, you know, even if I could write a book about the internal benefits, you know, by just if he could just help others, just get away from the self and the problems of the self and uh, and just kind of let that go and focus a little bit more on the concerns of the people around him and how he could contribute to their lives. He would actually have what I like to call the giver's glow and it would help him get through his, his pain. But he, but because there was no tit for tat, there was no calculated payback, right? There was no way he could say, boy, this is a great deal for me, right? Um, you know, he, he, the internal benefits could be as, 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 as big as the universe, but if he doesn't get the payback, then he's not going to have anything to do with it. And so we do limit ourselves. We think materialistically. Uh, we think in terms of tit for tat and reciprocal calculations. And if we could let some of that go and just kind of sit back, meditate a little bit. I do believe that when we live lives according to the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which is the big moral statement of all traditions. When we get into that space, then uh, we can connect with this dynamic energy and have experiences of synchronicity that we would otherwise perhaps not, uh, not have. The book is God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. Dr. Post, where can our listeners go to get more information? Well, my, my own website is Stephen with a P-H, Stephen G. Post, Stephen G. Post.com. And the institute I started with uh, Sir John Templeton, who named it actually, is unlimitedloveinstitute.org. So once again, that website, the main hub, is stephengpost.com. And as always, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, take part in our book club, and be sure to sign up for our mailing list. Dr. Post, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks, Joan. Thanks for having me. It's been a delight. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. 
If you are a person living with any discomfort, have trouble sleeping, or the many other issues that come with getting older, I have great news for you. You have a chance to do something for yourself and at the same time help a U.S. veteran. My name is Janice Coviello. For years, I've been living with knee pain and discomfort every time I did something active, even walking. But after eight knee surgeries, countless bottles of Advil, and hyaluronic acid injections, I was desperate for relief. My doctors told me a knee replacement was my only option. To avoid another surgery, I found another solution, a transdermal gel known for reducing joint pain, faster recovery from injuries, enhancing strength, and promoting natural tissue repair. I started using the gel with amazing results. For the first time in 17 years, I could run without Advil. In addition, I sleep better and have so much more energy. But just don't take my word for it. Go to foreveryoung.org to learn how the purchase of this product can benefit you and also help a U.S. veteran. That's the number foreveryoung.org. Calm, vitality, mindfulness. We all want them, but they seem so hard to attain. Escape the stress and frenzy of the city streets. New York Open Center offers courses, trainings, and a vibrant community to help you start your journey for a more balanced and healthy life. Visit our website at opencenter.org for more information. Stop by our cafe and bookstore for all your wellness needs. Find your center at 30th and Madison. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Amy Collins, author of the book Infant Inspiration and creator of the online course Moms, Courageous Women Raising the Next Generation. Amy promotes thoughtful conversations about motherhood. Her insightful perspectives look to empower mothers to own their role, clarify how it works best for them, and confidently express it. She's here today to discuss why parents should begin their day with an intention. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here, Joan. Thank you. So, Amy, we hear a lot about the importance of setting intentions, but why do you encourage us to set a specific parenting or a mothering intention? I encourage it, Joan, because while we're encouraged to set so many intentions every day or at least one intention, I think it's really important to break it down and have an intention specifically as a mother because we can get so wrapped up in running errands and getting our kids to school and all the to-do lists that we can forget what our overall goal is, right? It's easy. I mean, yes, we're raising these little people to become the next generation of healthy, competent adults, but on a daily basis, that can get mired in all this to-dos, to-dos activity. And um, so it's important that we take a step back and we say, overall, what's my intention? Is it to just simply love my children for who they are today? What is my intention? Is it to accept them, to encourage them, and just make it personal? So Amy, what do you say to yourself every morning? How do you word your intention? Here's something that I say each morning. I simply say, please help me to love my children as they are today. So that way it just sets me up for accepting them as they are in each moment. Sometimes it's happy and easy. Sometimes it's more difficult, but I look to be present each day with my child and to love and accept him or her. That's what I look to do. And it's very personal. So make the intention yours, make it personal, make it clear, make it simple. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about setting intentions or if you'd like to work with Amy or if you'd like to get a copy of her book, Infant Inspiration, you can visit her website, amymcollins.com. And as always, to hear more from Amy, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Amy. We'll be right back. Did you know that relaxation is learned behavior? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati, owner of Awaken Sound Health. It's that time of year when many find themselves overwhelmingly busy. In this season of breakneck shopping, indulgent eating, parties, and planning, do you find that you don't have time to just relax? 
You may think that relaxation is not important, but it is, and not just for peace of mind. Relaxation can help reduce the effects of stress on the body. It helps ward off disease and can be instrumental in dealing with the effects of chronic health conditions. Here are just a few benefits of practicing relaxation techniques. Slower heart rate, lower blood pressure, improved digestion, reduced muscle tension, improved concentration, and less fatigue. At Awaken Sound Health, we employ time-tested techniques using therapeutic sounds to help you relax. Relaxation is learned behavior, and you learn by doing. With repetition, the mind learns to let go of nagging thoughts quickly, and the body easily releases tension. Self-care is so important, and if you don't take care of yourself, you become less available to support, encourage, and take care of the ones you love. It's time for you to learn how to relax at Awaken Sound Health. Sound therapy is not a replacement for medical intervention. Learn more and book an appointment at awakensoundhealth.com. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. The brain is a muscle, and like the body, it needs exercise. Unfortunately, the brain no longer gets the workout our ancestors gave it, and therefore, we've lost the ability to memorize large amounts of information. Today's guest, Lynn Kelly, offers memory techniques and strategies to help us tap into the extraordinary capacity of the brain. Lynn is the author of the book, Memory Craft. Welcome, Lynn. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Joan. It's wonderful to be here. So, Lynn... What is it that has happened to us over the past years that's impacted our ability to memorize large amounts of information? Well, the problem started about 3,000 years ago with writing. Before cultures could write, they used vast numbers of memory techniques to memorize huge amounts of information. And this includes practical information like um, all the plants, a thousand plants or so, animals, animals. navigation, genealogies, lots and lots of things. And with writing, we started offloading that ability. And then with technology, we've done it even more. So Lynn, from all of your research, what are some of the best ways to boost memory? By far the best way is using what some people call memory palaces. They're known from the ancient Greeks and Romans that we can associate information with physical locations. So for example, if you imagine your house, and you take the entry door as the first location. And for example, you're going to remember all the countries in the world in order, so in population order. So you put China at the front door and you come up with some kind of story like a Chinese meal being delivered or smashing a China plate or something. That association in neuroscience terms is a temporal snapshot. You're linking two things. And so you can move right round the house. And the ancient Greeks and Roman orators used to do this. But my research showed that all indigenous cultures do it too. In Australia, the Aboriginal people, it's called songlines because they sing them. In America, pilgrimage trails. And again, they sing them because song is another thing that keeps things in memory. So doing it, you mentioned to be able to name all of the countries in the world. But what about the little things that we can't remember on a daily basis. I know as I'm aging, I could walk into a room and forget why I'm going in there. So how can these types of practices help us in our everyday life? That going into the room and forgetting while you're gone there is more that your brain is active and you've been distracted. And it happens to young people too. They just don't blame it on aging. With aging, uh, the neuroscience is quite strong very recently that with plasticity, that our brains do not necessarily decay. We can go on creating new uh, neuropathways, neural pathways, physical pathways in our brain. And there's evidence of people doing that at 100 years old. The problem is that we don't. So practicing these memory methods keeps your brain active and laying down new networks. For ordinary things like uh, where you've left your keys, The idea is to make a temporal snapshot. Where do you usually put your keys? Make an image of that in your head and then everywhere else it should look wrong. Or you set up habits. When I leave the house, I need my, my keys, my phone, tablet, maybe purse. I've got a checklist. 
when I get to the door, I've got a temporal snapshot at the door, check everything before you walk out that door. So by putting these processes in place, your brain will remind you every time. So it really boils down to focus, being mindful of what it is you're doing, and then learning how to expand your brain's capacity. Yes, and there's a whole lot of devices, not just the landscape or you know a house or building, but also there's handheld devices. The Africans use one called, uh, the Luba people in Africa, a Lukasa, which is just a piece of, that's L-U-K-A-S-A, Lukasa. It's just a piece of board with beads and shells glued onto it. And they've memorized vast amounts of information associated with this handheld device. It's a, you know, just comfortable to hold in your hand. And I thought this sounded like a load of rubbish. But, and I did the roughest research. I grabbed a bit of wood, whacked some beads and shells on, and I've memorized an entire field guide to the 412 birds of my state here in Australia. It is unbelievably effective because you're using tactile, you make up stories, um, the positions. Your brain will just do it. And I've found the same sort of devices all over the world. Lynn, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? I've got a website. Um, If you just Google my name, L-Y-N-E-K-E-L-L-Y, you'll find my website in Australia. And there's plenty of information there. About I'm doing I'm up to 40 experiments using all these different techniques that I've found out about from different indigenous cultures and ancient Greek and medieval because they still use memory a lot. It was taught in all schools right up into the medieval times. Uh, so I'm doing all these experiments and reporting them on my website. Lynn, in our final moments, What impact is technology having on the way we use our brain and what can we do about that? There's positive and negative. Firstly, I can talk to you now and we've got access to information. It's fantastic and in fact, that expands our brains. But we need to memorize as well. And the beauty when you've memorized something is you've laid down a really firm foundation on which you can start to build questions just putting in all the countries of the world in order, something I would have thought I could never do. Whenever I hear the news, I've now got a hook for every single country. Everything becomes more interesting and you can build on that information. So use the two together. There's no reason to stop using technology. We can do both. And in education, I've been doing this in schools um, with my research here, and it's amazing how students react to this alongside writing. Lynn, if we don't teach this skill to our children and they become more and more reliant on technology, what do you think will happen in the future? I believe the rates of dementia will increase and it'll, um, we'll start having dementia younger. Uh, there's different sorts of dementia. So I'm only talking the one that's uh, through natural decay of not using things. Uh, I also think that we become narrower in our thinking. I can't believe how broad my thinking's become since I've started memorizing things. I can now do foreign languages. I'm doing French and Mandarin. And all sorts of things become more possible for me because I'm seeing patterns that I couldn't see before because I've got information readily available to me. It's just a much more exciting way to be. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. Once again, the book is Memory Craft by Lynn Kelly. It's been an absolute pleasure. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you find that you're spending too much time on your phone or computer trying to keep on top of your social media? This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures with a social media simplified tip. Social media is an opt-in sport. You don't have to be on social media if you don't want to. It's an option, just like any advertising or marketing you choose to be involved with. You can opt in to be a part of any platform where you think you're going to get some traction. It doesn't matter if it's LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, or any of the other social media places you can be. You need to decide what you have the time for and then opt in to be there. Don't get lost in the fear of missing out. Instead, feel the excitement of knowing that you're doing what you think is best for your business. Small business owners want to focus on the actual doing of their own business. It's that passion 
for what they do that brought them to their calling in the first place. Think about it simply and easily. Social media is just that. It's social. Take 10 minutes and take a blank calendar. Write down in each daily space one idea that you'd like to talk about on social media. Get started with one of these. Give a tip about what a customer could do on their own or tell them what goes on behind the scenes at your business or share a quote that motivates you on a daily basis. If you need help with your social media for your business, give us a call. You can check out our website at smcventures.biz or visit us on Facebook or Instagram. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures. Get social with Sue. When it comes to having surgeries, I'm a pro. In double digits, actually. Three on my right knee alone. Fortunately, most from sports injuries and not sicknesses. With such vast experience, I have no fear of surgery, but I wasn't anxious to have my dominant right shoulder repaired. I mean, who wants to be in a sling for six weeks? Despite a completely detached and shredded bicep tendon, bone spur, torn labrum, torn rotator cuff, arthritis, bursitis, and tendonitis, I delayed having that shoulder surgery. My answer was a Band-Aid. Hi, I'm Ed Gaelic, a life and health insurance broker and founder of PSI Consultants, located in Glenrock, New Jersey. We have specialized in personal insurance and company-sponsored health benefits since 1985. Over the 15 years contemplating fixing my shoulder, I had physical therapy, cortisone shots, used ice, ibuprofen, had an ejection of a lubricant that wasn't even FDA-approved for shoulders. But pain relief was always temporary. By chance, I met an orthopedic surgeon who I sent my MRI. He called me and said, it ain't going to fix itself. That was the statement that I was missing. That one statement struck a chord and motivated me to move forward with surgery. All it took was one statement, one even grammatically lacking. Fast forward three years since, and I am 97% in motion, strength, and function, all because of one statement that for some reason got through to me. It ain't going to fix itself. Have you been avoiding taking care of your insurance planning? Waiting is seldom better. So what's keeping you from taking action? Have you just not heard that magic statement? It ain't going to fix itself work for me. What's the magic statement you'll need to get you to take action today? Raise your awareness. That magic statement may be screaming at you and you just haven't noticed. When you do, seek professional guidance today. To contact us, please visit our website, psi-consultants.com. Do you struggle to find the balance between elite performance and mental wellness? Hi, I'm Scott Doty, academic mentor, performance coach, and founder of Brainstorm Tutoring and Arts. And I often tell my students and my clients that wellness is the first step to achievement. When we say that we want to achieve at a high level and achieve peak performance when the stakes are high, whether that be on a big test, on the admissions process for college or grad school, nailing the interview for the dream job, killing it on the big performance for your theater or your music or your sports, we always begin with wellness. And so we start with the basics, sleep, hydration, breath work, community, and positive self-talk. From the basis of incredible personal, emotional, mental wellness, we have the stability to build into our goals to achieve at our best performance level in whatever it is that we're performing and pursuing and endeavoring to kill and crush and dominate in. We begin with wellness and then performance follows. If you want to hear more about our holistic approach to elite performance, please check out Brainstorm's website, stormthetest.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. your health. Joining me today is Dr. Katherine Berndorf, co-founder and medical director of the Motherhood Center, a treatment center in New York City for pregnant and new moms experiencing anxiety and depression. She specializes in treating women before, during, and after pregnancy, as well as at other times of transition in their lives. Dr. Berndorf is an associate professor of psychiatry at Cornell. She was a regular mental health columnist for Self Magazine and has appeared on numerous television programs, including The Today Show, Good Morning America, MSNBC, and CNN. 
She is a co-author of the new book, What No One Tells You, A Guide to Your Emotions During Pregnancy and Motherhood. She's here today to discuss Mommy Brain. Welcome, Dr. Berndorf. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Catherine, I've heard the term mommy brain being used more and more. What does this mean? What is a mommy brain? For anyone who's ever had too much on their mind and felt scattered and overwhelmed and forgetful, that's kind of what it feels like. It's this idea that there's a fog and you feel slowed down and concentration is hard to find. So it's kind of like what I do on a daily basis, having my eyeglasses on my head and looking for them. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Does it ever end? No, never. I think I always, you know, say once a mother, always a mother. And that's not derogatory. In fact, it's an amazing thing to be able to say something like that. But guess what? You've just added another lane to the highway in your head. So I'll sometimes use the analogy with patients or friends. I'll say like, you know, if you're, when you're on your own, you're on a single lane and then you have a partner and now you've got a two lane highway or or a divided road. And, And then you bring on a kid that add on another lane. They're in your mind and you just keep going from there. The idea is, is that you keep adding things to have to think about and remember and do and um, take care of. And they're always on your mind. They're always with you. Even if your kids, my kids say to me, you're not thinking about me. You're not considering my this or that. I'm like, you're always on my mind. You can't forget. You're really It's very hard to forget, and that takes up space and time and energy, and it doesn't make us dumb. It, in fact, expands the brain. We have to use more of our brain and grow parts of it that we may not have used before. So it's not that we become less smart or we become cognitively impaired. I think we become potentially busier up there with more going on on our multi-lane highway that we're trying to keep track of at all times. So it's a particular state of being that is very um, kind of multitasking and busy. And when you add in all of the external forces like technology and social media and, you know, constant cell phone use and television 24 hours, and you put that on top of the family responsibilities and the children, it's very easy to understand overwhelm. Absolutely. It's like you're just surprised you can walk in a straight line. There's so many things you're you're thinking about at the same time. So it's not a comfortable state of being um, when we allow ourselves to become overwhelmed, which is an easy default place to live with a brain that's so full of things happening in there. Um, but what I always find as an antidote, right, that, that this is a, you know, when you let yourself go there, you realize how many things you are thinking about and that are going on up there in your brain. But like, I always think of it when I'm, when I'm seeing a patient and I'm sitting in the room and it's a singular experience and there's nothing else happening in the world except what's going on in that room between myself and the other person. I'm so focused. I'm so present in the moment. I'm in my flow. And it, it feels like the mommy brain part of my head that's otherwise almost always on is pushed aside a little bit. It's still there. I mean, if school calls or if the kids, you know, reaching out, they know how to find me. But for those moments that I'm singularly in the present, it's such a different experience. Like to me, that's, that's the opposite of the mommy brain, which is, you know, stuff going on all the time up there, right. Making you feel frazzled and, oh my gosh, there's so much to do and so much to get done. It's, it's, and, and so to me, the antidote, is not just that you have to become a psychiatrist and see patients and only be in your office. It's that how do you create experiences that, that allow you to have that singular focus? Like that when you're with someone, that you can be present and available with them. Or when you're doing something, that you can have your as much of your whole mind there in mm-hmm. that process. So how important is self-care in the process? Proper nutrition, getting sleep, How does that play in with alleviating mommy brain? I think it's incredibly important, not just for mommy brain, but for everything mommy and everything person. You know, that that taking care of ourselves is not an act of selfishness. It's an act of self-preservation. And if we don't do it, who's going to do it? If we're not looking out for ourselves, who will be? And, And that's not to say, you know, me, 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 first, first, first. It is also true 
also that when we have all these other responsibilities that we must take care of ourselves first, though, because we can't do these other things and be a focused, efficient, you know, person at work or, um, you know, happy mood in a relationship if we're not sleeping, right? Sleep is medicine. And if we're not sleeping enough, if we're not eating well enough because we're, you know, it's like grab and go as opposed to, you know, sitting down and being able to eat a healthy meal, whatever that is, those things are so essential to this kind of, to your foundation. And if you're not feeding yourself, literally and metaphorically, you're, you're at a disadvantage. So I think the confusion and fogginess that can come with the, the multitasking mommy brain is, is only made worse when you're not nourished sufficiently. And, you know, you and I were joking about it. And as women, we tend to joke about mommy brain and and being forgetful. But as you're saying, we as women tend to put ourselves at the bottom of the chain. And it's just so important to make sure that our well is full so that we can take care of other people. Right. And as as silly and and off-quoted as the, you know, airlines are with, you know, put your oxygen mask on before you put on, you know, the the child next to you or the person that helped the person next to you, it's actually true, right? Mm-hmm. If, if, if you aren't okay, you're probably not okay to help somebody else either. The book is What No One Tells You, A Guide to Your Emotions During Pregnancy and Motherhood. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Berndorf and her work, you can visit themotherhoodcenter.com. And as always, to hear more from Dr. Berndorf, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Catherine. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us and for helping us get rid of mommy brain. We've all had it. And these tips can go a long way in helping us cope and be a better caregiver to those we love. Thanks, Joan. We'll be right back. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Conversations with Joan, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, take part in the book club, check out our team, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.